Michael Lewis is an incredibly talented author who has written numerous books that have been adapted for the big screen. If you're not familiar with Michael's name, you've probably seen the movies based on some of his other books. The Blind Side, based on the life of the real football player Michael Orr. Or Moneyball, which saw Brad Pitt portray Oakland Athletics general manager Billy Bean's use of sabermetrics in Major League Baseball. While those are both great prospects for future episodes, neither one of those things are what we're going to be learning about today. But we will be looking at another movie starring Brad Pitt based on a book by Michael Lewis. The Big Short, Inside the Doomsday Machine, was published by Michael Lewis in 2010. Three years later, and no doubt because of the success of the other movies that have been adapted from Michael's books, Paramount purchased the rights to the film. With Brad Pitt on board as one of the producers, Adam McKay and Charles Randolph were hired to adapt the book to the big screen. Charles co-wrote the film, with Adam co-writing and directing it. The book was far from a comedy, it was merely a non-fictional telling of what happened with the housing bubble of 2007 and 2008. So when Adam took on adapting such a serious topic for the big screen, there had to have been plenty of people who wondered how well he'd do. After all, Adam was the head writer on NBC's sketch comedy Saturday Night Live for two years. Then he went on to direct hit comedies like Anchorman and Anchorman 2, Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, and The Other Guys. In fact, The Big Short is the first film of Adam's to not star the comedian Will Ferrell in it. Instead, it had Michael Scott from The Office, funny man Steve Carell. And while The Big Short had plenty of funny moments thrown in, does that mean the filmmaker sacrificed accuracy for humor? Let's dive into the housing bubble as we learn how true to history the movie was. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before we begin this episode, let's play a little game. It's called Two Truths and a Lie. I'll share two facts that are true and one lie. Then, at the end of the episode, we'll learn which is which. Okay, here they are. Number one, the housing collapse of 2008 was caused by greed and corruption and could have been avoided. Number two, of the main characters in the film, Michael Burry was the only one to keep his real name. Number three, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Goldman Sachs, and Lehman Brothers all were banks that went bankrupt and completely collapsed. All of the answers are scattered throughout the episode, or you can stay on to the end of the show to find out which ones are true and which one is a lie. Oh, and have you had a chance to check out the Based on a True Story book yet? If you have, I would love to hear what you think. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, basically I've edited down some of the great stories that we've heard here on the show and published them into a new book that'll make a great read for anyone who loves history and movies. Podcasts are great and all, but nothing really replaces the feel of a physical book and turning the pages. Now you can get your own copy over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash books. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash books. Thanks again for listening. And now let's compare history with Hollywood's version of The Big Short. Maybe this is a spoiler to the rest of the episode, but The Big Short kicks off with something that is probably the biggest inaccuracy in the film. 
That's when Ryan Gosling's character, Jared Vennett, breaks the fourth wall by telling the camera that the world of banking is very boring. I'm not referring to Jared's claim that the banking is boring. That is actually true. What I'm referring to is Jared's existence at all. You see, Jared Vennett is not a real person. The character of Jared in The Big Short is based on a real person by the name of Greg Lippman. Until he stepped down in 2010, Greg was the global head of the asset-backed securities trading at Deutsche Bank. And that segues into many of the other characters in the film. Almost all of them have had their names changed. Steve Carell's character in the movie is Mark Baum. The character of Mark is based on a hedge fund manager named Steve Eisman. Or there's Ben Rickert, who's played by Brad Pitt. His last name was changed in the movie. There is no Ben Rickard, but instead he's based on Ben Hockett. Of the main characters, the one who didn't have his name changed was Christian Bale's character, Michael Burry. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com/tos for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks Earnin. Anyway, back in the movie, Ryan Gosling's character, Jared, is explaining that Louis Ranieri changed the game by creating mortgage-backed securities. In the movie, Louis Ranieri is played by Rudy Eisenzoff. Louis is a real person, and the claims made in the movie are pretty accurate. In the 1970s, Louis worked at Solomon Brothers, a Wall Street bank that was worth billions up until their acquisition by Travelers Group in 1998. It was in the 1970s when Lewis helped come up with securitization. If you're not familiar with that term, don't worry, you're not alone. It's a term that Lewis actually claimed to have coined himself. Basically, securitization is a method of taking a bunch of different types of debt, pulling them together, and then selling them off to a third-party investor. So why would a third-party investor buy up a bunch of debt? Well, it's essentially a way of moving money from one account to another and then skimming off the top as you do. When someone buys up a collection of debt, which the movie The Big Short correctly explains as a collateralized debt obligation or CDO, those investors get repaid through both principal and interest cash flows that are then collected on the debt. Perhaps one of the simplest ways to understand this is to make up a sample scenario. Let's say you want to borrow $10 from your friend. They're willing to loan you the money, but they're not really sure if you're good for it. You agree to pay 10 cents per day. That means that you would pay him the full $10 back in 100 days. 
can you repay that amount in 100 days? To convince them that you can repay the money, you offer up your prized baseball card collection as collateral. So the deal is that you'll take your friends $10 right now and then you'll pay 10 cents per day for 100 days. If you don't fulfill that agreement, at the end of 100 days, he gets your prized baseball card collection. It's gotta be worth at least $10, right? So your friend agrees and lends you the $10. Now, in the financial world, that example would be referred to as an asset-backed security loan. Your baseball card collection is being used to help back a loan. Ideally, you pay everything off and you get to keep your collection. Now, your friend might be rooting for you, but in most cases, the banks aren't your friend. They'll be hoping that you do not fulfill your obligation so that they can take your prized baseball card collection. That way, they can turn around and sell it. Not only then do they get to press charges against you for the original $10 that they let you borrow, but they also get the extra money that whatever it is that they make for selling your prized baseball card collection. 10 bucks plus a prized baseball card collection? No wonder the banks make, well, <laughs> bank. The idea Louis Ranieri helped bring about was to use home mortgages instead of assets. Instead of using your prized baseball card collection, why not use your home mortgage? After all, there's no way you'd ever stop paying on your home. So as you keep paying your premiums on your home, you get to keep your home and your assets, your baseball card collection. Everybody wins, right? Well, maybe for a little while at least. Back in the film, after Ryan Gosling's introduction of Jared Bennett, we get to meet some of the other stars in the film. Christian Bale kicks it off by introducing us to Michael Burry. As we learned earlier, Michael is a real person, and the real Michael Burry is very similar to the way Christian Bale portrays him on screen. Although, as an actor, Christian Bale had to force one of his eyes to be lazy on screen to look like he has a glass eye. He did this because, in real life, Michael Burry does have a glass eye. In the movie, Christian Bale's version of Michael does a voiceover while the film shows shots of children playing football. He explains he's always been more comfortable alone, and he believes it's because of his glass eye, which he lost in a childhood illness. This is true, although the movie doesn't really go into much more depth. In truth, the real Michael Burry had to have his left eye removed because of a rare form of cancer. This happened before he was even two years old. But that's not the only reason Michael was more comfortable alone. When Michael had children of his own, a doctor diagnosed his child with Asperger's syndrome. That's when, as an adult, Michael started to believe that he himself also has the disorder. Oh, and in the movie, Christian Bale's version of Michael Burry is sometimes referred to as Dr. Burry. This too is true. Michael Burry studied neurology at Stanford, but his heart really wasn't in it. He had a lot more fun with an investing blog that he started while he was at school. So eventually he decided to quit medicine, shut down his blog and go full time into being a money manager. But he still maintained his title and often went by Dr. Michael Burry. After this, the movie introduces us to Mark Malm, who's played by Steve Carell. In the movie, Mark comes across as a rather brash person. He takes over a counseling session and starts talking about his problems. He complains to his wife, who's played by Marissa Tomei, and she seems to be rather familiar with Mark's rants. We already learned Mark Baum is not a real person, but Steve Carell's portrayal of Mark Baum was based on a very real person named Steve Eisman. And the way Steve Carell played Mark Baum is very close to the real Steve Eisman. 
Now that's a tongue twister, isn't it? In fact, according to an interview with Steve Carell after the film was released, he explained that the real Steve Iceman was on set, helping guide the portrayal of Mark Baum's character. In one scene, Steve would say he's much happier, or in another scene, he would explain that nah, he would be much more brooding in this instance. So while many of the conversations themselves were altered for the film, the overall character of Mark Baum is pretty accurate as a portrayal of Steve Iceman. After being introduced to Mark Baum, the movie cuts back to Christian Bale's version of Michael Burry, who discovers a lot of the housing market is backed by subprime loans. Then, the movie does something it does periodically throughout. It uses a well-known person to explain something very boring about the housing industry. In this case, it's Margot Robbie in a bubble bath and drinking champagne as she explains the term subprime means shit. Well, <laughs> after this explanation, we see Michael Burry go around to a bunch of banks and start buying up bonds. Of course, the explanation didn't happen in history, but the movie doesn't really try to pretend like it does. However, the explanation is pretty spot on, as is the portrayal of Michael Burry going to buy bonds from the banks. A subprime mortgage is basically a housing loan made to someone who has less than perfect credit, someone who the banks think might have a tough time paying it back. Usually, this is based on an event in someone's life. Maybe it's unemployment, a divorce, a medical emergency, something that keeps them from working. Any number of things could trigger this, but basically, if the banks don't think you can pay the loan back consistently, month to month, without missing payments, you could get lumped into a subprime mortgage. But there's still mortgages. If there's one thing people will pay first, it's for a roof over their heads, right? So while the banks might have thought that they weren't ideal people to loan to, even subprime mortgages were still mortgages. So what Michael Burry did was he convinced the banks to sell him credit default swaps against the subprime mortgages he had identified as being the most likely to be the first to default. Basically, the ones that he thought people wouldn't be able to pay back. So that begs the question, what is a credit default swap anyway? Well, in the movie, it's Anthony Bourdain who comes in to explain this one. In the example, Anthony Bourdain explains the banks take a bunch of bad bonds and put them into a collateralized debt obligation or CDO. Being a world famous chef, he then compares it to a restaurant making a seafood stew out of old fish. Instead of throwing away the fish that they bought, they take the leftovers, put it into a stew. All of a sudden, you have something new. It's not old fish, right? This explanation is pretty accurate, even if it is extremely simplified. While I'm no Anthony Bourdain, let's try to go a little bit deeper in and explain what some of the other terminology is that we hear in the movie. So originally, a CDO was a collection of asset-backed securities. Remember the loan that you made to your friend earlier in the episode when you put up your prized baseball card collection as collateral? Let's continue that example and this time say that nine other people did the same deal. Okay, so now there's a total of 10 people, those nine others plus you, each one has a $10 loan. Collectively, all of these can be put together into a CDO. So instead of individual $10 loans, there's one obligation of debt in the amount of $100. That's 10 times 10, 
once again, keeping this simple. Now, on the banker's side, they take a look at the people involved in the CDO and split up that loan into multiple pieces. These are something that we hear about in the movie. They're called tranches. Think of tranches like pieces of the pie. Now, for the sake of this example, let's say there are two bankers willing to split the cost of the CDO. One of them wants to buy 80% of the CDO, so they pay $80. The other pays $20 for the remaining 20%. That money is divided up, and then you and everyone else who applied for the loan gets their $10. But it's not free money. You have to pay it back, and with interest, of course. And with any sort of loan, there's always an element of risk. Just how much risk depends on a couple factors. The first is who you're loaning to. Sure, you're good for the $10, but is everyone else good for it? Maybe, maybe not. That's why banks look at past life events such as marriage, divorce, medical emergency, as well as how well you've been able to pay off debts before. All of this is rolled into your credit score which basically tells the bank how much of a risk you are. Now, another factor for the banks to keep in mind is their side of it. If one of the bankers spends $80 for the majority of the CDO, should they take the same amount of risk as the banker who spent $20? No, of course not. So, for that reason, CDOs are rated based on how safe they are. When the bank issues a CDO, they rate the tranches by things like AAA, AA, single A, or BBB or triple B. Since tranches are slices of the overall CDO, basically what the bank is doing is that they're saying if you pay more, you'll get a safer bet. The banker who paid $80 might have bought a triple A tranche while the other one, who only spent $20, might have got a triple B tranche. Now, in this scenario, the banker who bought the triple A tranche would get their money back first. So as you pay back your loan and the others start to pay back their loans, the triple A tranches would get paid off first, and eventually it would start to trickle down to the triple B tranches. And what happens if not everyone pays the CDO off? What happens if maybe you pay the bill off, but what if the other nine people, what if they don't all pay their bill off? Well, that's why triple B tranches are more of a risk because the triple A tranches are getting paid off first. Hopefully that helps explain CDOs and tranches a bit more, but don't worry, it'll get even more complex here in a bit. Back in the movie, we finally get introduced to two more investors, Charlie Geller, who's played by John Magaro, and Jamie Shipley, who's played by Finn Whitrock. They're waiting for someone in the lobby of J.P. Morgan Chase, but they get turned down. That's when they find a pitch from Ryan Gosling's character, Jared Vennett, just lying on the table. Then Finn Whitrock's version of Jamie Shipley breaks the fourth wall by telling the camera this isn't entirely accurate to what really happened. Well, that's true. By that, I mean the discovery of the pitch wasn't accurate. But the movie acknowledges this and then plainly states what actually happened, so there's really not much more to say here. After this, though, we get introduced to Ben Rickard. He's played by Brad Pitt. Again, Ben's name was changed from the movie. The real person's name is Ben Hockett. But as far as we can tell, Brad Pitt did a pretty good job of depicting the real person fairly well. The reason I say as far as we can tell is because, well... The real Ben Hockett has chosen to live a secluded life, which is 
the sense that we get from the character in the film. Ben made his money by working for a Deutsche Bank in Tokyo for almost a decade. According to one of the few interviews that he's done, Ben explained that after he got married and had his son, he decided that he wanted to get out. He didn't like who he was becoming, and he didn't want his son to see him that way. So he told his bosses that he was going to quit. Their response gives you an idea of how good Ben was at his job. Rather than accepting his resignation, they asked him to explain the things that he didn't like. He said he didn't like going to the office, he didn't like wearing suits, and he didn't like living in the big city. <laughs> so, pretty much everything. Now, they replied by telling him, well, you can wear whatever you want, you can live wherever you want, as long as you don't quit. So, he stayed on. Well, for a time. And that's where the other two young investors come in. As you can probably guess by now, the two young investors that Brad Pitt's character helps aren't called by their real names in the movie either. In the film, they're Charlie Geller and Jamie Shipley. In real life, Charlie Geller's real name is Charles Ledley, and Jamie's real name is James Mai. The movie explains the two started working out of Jamie's garage with $110,000 that Jamie earned by taking sailboats up and down the east coast of the United States. And that's partially true, but it's not really the full story. So in truth, James Mai started the company called Cornwall Capital as a means to diversify his father's money. He did this with his father's help. So you're probably wondering, who is his father? Vincent Mai was the CEO and chairman of AEA Investors, one of the oldest private equity firms in the United States. He was also the chairman of the board at Sesame Workshop, the producers of Sesame Street. Oh, and he also serves on the board for the Juilliard School, as well as having served as a trustee for the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Needless to say, he's kind of well off. James took $110,000 and started the hedge fund in his garage with Charles Ledley. So it's a fairly accurate to what we see in the movie. However, the movie makes it seem like the two are lost without Brad Pitt's character, Ben Rickard. In truth, they received a lot of help from James' father, Vincent Mai, who knew a thing or two about investments. Still, Ben Hockett did join Cornwall Capital in 2005, about three years after it was founded. And as of this recording, he's still a part of the company. Back in the movie, two groups of the film's main characters head to Las Vegas for a conference. It's here that Steve Carell's version of Mark Baum starts to realize there is a housing bubble. This realization hits as he's sitting across from a businessman named Mr. Chow. In the movie, Mr. Chow is played by Byron Mann. Here is where we get another explanation of a banking term, this time from Richard Thaler and Selena Gomez as they explain synthetic CDOs. And again, their explanation is pretty spot on. If you remember from our little example of a $10 loan and nine other people getting the same loan as it's rolled into a single CDO, a synthetic CDO would be if someone else rolled a number of CDOs into yet another CDO called a synthetic CDO. It's kind of like CDOception, except this really happened. And they're purposefully complex. Bankers don't really want you and I to know what's going on. But in essence, synthetic CDOs are kind of like building a house of cards. You're buying slices or tranches of debt rolled into another debt. In this case, all of this debt was propped up by the housing industry. So 
it was pretty stable when compared to other forms of debt, but it's still bound to fail. No matter how well you balance your house of cards, it's only a matter of time before it falls. As Steve Carell's Mark Baum sits across from Byron Mann's version of Mr. Chow, it starts to settle in. Oh, and I should mention there really is a Mr. Chow. His name is Wing Chow, and he worked as a CDO manager for Merrill Lynch. Or, well, for the investors, but really for Merrill Lynch. That whole working for investors thing that he explained in the movie was pretty accurate. After Michael Lewis wrote his book, The Big Short, the real Wing Chow sued Michael Lewis for defamation. He claimed being portrayed as the biggest villain in the book hurt his ability to get a job. Mr. Chow did not win that lawsuit. There's a great article that covers the case by Felix Salmon over on Reuters. I'll make sure to put a link to it in the show notes. As Felix explains in the article, a more likely scenario for Mr. Chow's inability to find work is that after the housing collapse, no one needs a CDO manager anymore. Back in the movie, the few who saw the housing bubble start buying up swaps. Their plan is to short them in hopes of profiting during a collapse. That is true, and although the movie is pretty accurate in its depiction of the overarching events, if you're like me, you can find the big short still leaving you wondering how people can make a ton of money when the housing market collapses. There's a very brief moment where it's explained, but it's easy to miss. Basically, the way it works is that banks started to hand out mortgages to anyone and everyone. Think of it like the worst edition of Oprah ever. You get a mortgage and you get a mortgage. But for most people in the United States in the mid-2000s, it was great. Banks would be willing to give you a home loan without a lot of pressure. In fact, in many instances, they try to get you to buy an even nicer home. That's great, isn't it? You get a nice house and the banks make money each month when you make your payments. Everybody wins. On the back end, the banks would take your mortgage and throw it in with a bunch of other mortgages to turn it into a CDO. So Wall Street investors would buy and sell these CDOs to make plenty of money of their own. They, in turn, would pressure the banks to lend even more. More loans means more CDOs and more money to make. Everyone wins, right? That only works for as long as the housing values keep going up and people can keep making their payments. Unfortunately, the banks didn't really try too hard to check to see if the people that they were loaning money to had a realistic chance of paying it back. It wasn't something that happened overnight, but the demand for houses meant more houses were being built. Slowly, the supply for the houses started to dip beyond the demand and the housing prices started to go down. At the same time, people who couldn't ever afford the payments that they were offered to begin with started to lapse on their payments. According to the Social Security Administration, the average person's income was $40,405.48 in 2007, or about $3,367 per month before taxes. In 2007, the cost of the average home sold was nearing $300,000 or a monthly mortgage of about $1,400. Of course, those are just averages and I didn't factor in things like taxes, food costs, and other bills that everyone needs to live. You can see though how quickly the housing costs were reaching a point where it'd be really tough to make the payments even if you wanted to. In 2008, just like the movie shows, everything came crashing down. 
with housing supply starting to outpace demand, the housing prices started to fall and people who were already struggling to pay for their homes started to fall further behind. This caused a chain reaction that caused the worst recession in the United States since the Great Depression started on October 29, 1929. Most of the world didn't believe it could happen. Housing would never crash. What makes people like Michael Burry and the others in the Big Short special was that they saw through the numbers and they saw the crash as being inevitable. So they went out and bought what amounted to insurance on the housing market. No one else believed it could happen. So all of the banks were completely happy selling insurance on something that never happened. All it would mean for them was that as long as the housing market stayed aloft, Michael Burry, Greg Lippman, Steve Eisman, and the rest had to keep paying monthly premiums on their insurance. Think of it like buying insurance on a car. Except this just isn't any car. It's a special car that everyone in the world thinks is going to be kept in a showroom. There's no way anything will happen to it. You happen to be the only person who knows its true purpose will be as a demolition car. It's only a matter of time before the car will get totaled and you'll be able to claim the insurance money when that happens. Would you do it? The big difference here being something Brad's Pitt character shares with Jamie and Charlie in Vegas. When the housing market crashes, it means people will get hurt. Millions of people will lose their jobs. They'll be homeless. And many will even die as a result. Would you still do it? The investors in The Big Short did. Although it's worth pointing out that the movie correctly shows them as not really liking it. The real Steve Eisman, who was the basis for the character Mark Baum, didn't like that he was correct. Just like Steve Carell's portrayal of disgust at the corruption of the system, Steve Eisman hated it. But he still made millions from it. With so much money being thrown around and so many lives being affected, there was way too much going on to talk about it here. I'd really recommend picking up Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short, to get a much more in-depth understanding of what happened. Although there was a lot of events that led up to it, on February 7, 2007, the housing market began its downward crash when the bank HSBC announced it would see larger losses than they had originally anticipated due to the rising number of defaults from subprime mortgages, people who couldn't pay their mortgages. A couple months later, on April 2nd, New Century Financial, which was one of the largest subprime mortgage lenders in the United States, announced it cut 3,200 jobs and filed for bankruptcy. In June, another bank, Bear Stearns, announced they were forced to dump assets due to a large holding of subprime mortgages that were reporting large losses. This was another chain reaction because other banks such as Merrill Lynch, JP Morgan Chase, Citigroup, and Goldman Sachs had all lent Bear Stearns money. On September 18, 2007, the Federal Reserve started cutting interest rates at seven straight meetings. Their reasoning for this cut was to help the credit crunch, but at the same time, they also agreed to start lending money directly to Wall Street firms. Before this, the Federal Reserve only lent money to banks. Since the failing firms on Wall Street didn't have assets to use as collateral, the Federal Reserve, which was the backbone of the economy in the United States, agreed to take the mortgage-backed securities as collateral. Then, as 2008 rolled around, things only got worse. 
On March 16, 2008, the Federal Reserve decided to step in and help Bear Stearns, which was on the verge of bankruptcy. The Federal Reserve essentially forced J.P. Morgan Chase to buy out Bear Stearns and assume $29 billion in losses. Oh, and the Federal Reserve gave J.P. Morgan Chase about $25 billion to help with that. Then, on July 11, 2008, the U.S. government took over one of the leading banks who had lent money to people without proof of income. This was the FDIC, or the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, taking over a Californian bank called IndyMac. To date, this was the most expensive bank failure in history. However, the FDIC issued an announcement that this was not to be the last. And they were right. Probably the most notable of the other banks hit by the crisis were Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Fannie Mae is the pronunciation of an acronym, FNMA, which stands for the Federal National Mortgage Association. It's a publicly traded company that was established by the U.S. government during the Great Depression in 1938. Freddie Mac is the term given to Fannie Mae's brother organization. Freddie Mac is the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, or FHLMC. Freddie Mac was also created by the government, although not until 1970. Together, those two companies were the backers of over $5 trillion in mortgages. Trillion with a T. But with the housing crisis and so many unable to pay their mortgages, their losses were staggering. The U.S. government stepped in here too. On September 6, 2008, the United States Treasury Department announced they were taking over both Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That means the government had absorbed $5 trillion in debt. At the same time, the Treasury Department also announced they loaned $200 billion to other banks who were crucial home lenders. Nine days later, one of the country's largest banks, Bank of America, agreed to buy out one of the country's largest mortgage brokers, Merrill Lynch. That deal cost $50 billion. Around the same time, another massive Wall Street firm, Lehman Brothers, filed for bankruptcy. According to the FDIC, the largest banks closed in 2008 were Washington Mutual, with about $307 billion in assets, IndyMac at $32 billion, Downey Savings and Loan at $12.8 billion, Franklin Bank SSB with $5.1 billion, and First National Bank of Nevada at a measly $3.4 billion. Those may have been some of the big banks who failed, merged, or were simply taken over, but they were hardly the only ones that were affected. Merrill Lynch announced it lost $5.5 billion. Then a couple days later, it revised that number to $8.4 billion. Another bank, NetBank, went completely bankrupt. A Swiss bank, UBS, announced that it lost almost $700 million. Over 400 people were arrested for mortgage fraud by the FBI between March 1st and June 18th, 2009. At the end of the movie, there's some text on the screen that gives us a summary of events. According to the film, $5 trillion in pensions, real estate, 401ks, savings and bonds simply disappeared. As a result of this, 
1.8 million people lost their jobs and 6 million people lost their homes in the United States alone. Unfortunately, these numbers are accurate. Over 8 million people lost their jobs between 2007 and 2009 in the United States, in no small part to the between 6 and 7 million who lost their homes. On Christmas Eve in 2009, the U.S. Treasury Department made a historic announcement that most people probably didn't even pay attention to. They announced that they would be providing unlimited financial support to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Unlimited. Those two companies had losses in excess of $400 billion. And yet the government, who took over both Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, was unwilling to let them fail, no matter what it cost. As a side note here, this sort of a bubble was not the first to burst. At the turn of the century, there was a dot-com bubble that saw an onslaught of tech companies grow and then crash. Many companies simply folded. Some, like Amazon.com, saw their stock price drop from $700 per share to $7 per share in the collapse. Between 1999 and 2001, as the dot-com bubble burst, about $6.2 trillion in wealth simply disappeared. So why wasn't there such a massive economic collapse then? Perhaps the answer was found by the professor of economics and public affairs at Princeton University, Atif Mian, which he explains in his book called House of Debt. Basically, the dot-com companies were held up by a bunch of rich investors. So when the companies failed, yeah, they lost a ton of money but they could afford to do that. In contrast, the people who lost during the housing collapse were anything but the super rich. They were normal people like you and I. So when they started to fall behind on bills, eventually losing their homes and jobs, their spending stopped. And that devastated the economy. The real Michael Burry ended up making exactly what the movie says he did. When Christian Bale walks out of Cyan Capital at the end of the movie, he writes up 489% on the whiteboard. Although Michael has since said he didn't go out looking to short the housing market, but because he happened to notice it, he couldn't turn it down. After founding his company, Cyan Capital, on November 1st, 2000, by the time June of 2008 hit, Michael ended up recording returns of 489.34% of the net fees and expenses, as a quick comparison, the S&P 500 reported a return of about 3% in that same time frame. Michael's investors earned $700 million in profit, while Michael himself made about $100 million for his efforts. Many of the others depicted in the movie weren't quite as forthcoming with how much they made out of the deal, but it's safe to say they were all profitable. As we learned, the character of Jared Vennett, as played by Ryan Gosling, was based on a man named Greg Lipman. During the crash, Greg worked at Deutsche Bank. While we don't really know exactly how much Greg made himself, according to an investigation from the Senate committee who was tasked with digging into the housing collapse, Deutsche Bank had built up a $5 billion short against the subprime market. And the committee found a bunch of emails from Greg that led them to believe he was behind it. So while we don't know exactly how much Greg profited from shorting the market, Greg left Deutsche Bank soon after and started his own hedge fund in 2010 called Liebermax Capital. In the movie, Mark Baum is married to a woman named Cynthia, who is played by Marissa Tomei. We already learned that the character of Mark Baum is based on Steve Eisman, 
Steve's wife is named Valerie, so her name was also changed for the film. Steve Eisman also ended up profiting from the collapse, although, like the movie shows, he really wasn't too happy with it. No, I'm, I'm sure he was happy with the money, but not in the corrupt system that caused the collapse. In 2010, Steve took a position against corruption when he launched a campaign against for-profit colleges. In one of his speeches, he said after the housing collapse, he never thought he'd be involved in an industry as socially destructive and morally corrupt as the subprime mortgage industry. Then, he went on to explain how the for-profit education industry is exactly the same. Others have criticized Steve for this, claiming the regulations he supported would profit him since he had short positions against private colleges. As for Charlie and Jamie in the movie, they're still around too. Although the company that they founded was called Brownfield in the movie, and that's not true. Charles Ledley and James Mai founded Cornwall Capital, as we learned earlier, and made approximately $120 million by the time the market crashed. In 2009, Charles left Cornwall and started his own hedge fund in Boston. As of this recording, both James Mai and Ben Hockett are working together at Cornwall Capital. The final text on the screen in the movie says that in 2015, several large banks started selling billions of something called a bespoke tranche opportunity. According to the movie, this is just another name for a CDO. This is true, although the movie makes it seem like CDOs disappeared. Sadly, they haven't. After the collapse in 2008, sales of CDOs understandably slowed. About 90% of the investors who bought into CDOs before the collapse reported losses, but they didn't go away. In 2012, Citigroup sold about $2 billion in synthetic CDOs and nearly $1 billion in the first three months of 2013 alone. A 2015 article from Bloomberg News states that Goldman Sachs has joined with other banks to start selling something they're calling a bespoke tranche opportunity. Despite the name change, as the movie says, these are essentially CDOs that are sliced up into different levels of risk and sold to investors at hedge funds. If that sounds familiar, it should. How long do you think the House of Cards will survive this time? In January of 2011, the United States Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission reported its findings on the housing crash. Here is a quote from its findings. The crisis was avoidable and caused by widespread failures in financial regulation, including the Federal Reserve's failure to stem the tide of toxic mortgages, dramatic breakdowns in corporate governance, including too many financial firms acting recklessly and taking on too much risk, an explosive mix of excessive borrowing and risk by households and Wall Street that put the financial system on a collision course with crisis, key policymakers ill-prepared for the crisis, lacking a full understanding of the financial system they oversaw, and systemic breaches in accountability and ethics at all levels. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. If you haven't already, I would highly recommend picking up Michael Lewis's book called The Big Short Inside the Doomsday Machine. 
There's so many more details and they're told in such a way that only Michael can do. I'll make sure to put a link to the book in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Based on True Story podcast. When you're done ordering your copy of The Big Short, why not hop over to iTunes and leave a rating and review for the show? I would truly appreciate it. Thank you so much in advance. You can find the link to Michael's book, all of the other podcast episodes, sign up for the show's newsletter to get some exclusive behind the scenes of the show, and more over at the show's home on the web at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Finally, it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the housing collapse of 2008 was caused by greed and corruption and could have been avoided. Number two, of the main characters in the film, Michael Burry was the only one to keep his real name. Number three, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Goldman Sachs, and Lehman Brothers all went bankrupt and completely collapsed. Number one and number two are true. That means number three is a lie. Let's start with Lehman Brothers. They were founded in 1850 and by 2008 had become the fourth largest mortgage bank in the United States. That's behind Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and Merrill Lynch, who we already learned was forced to sell to Bank of America. The housing collapse was the demise of Lehman Brothers. In 2008, they filed for bankruptcy and liquidated everything they could to businesses and banks around the world, most of them going to either a company called Nomura Holdings in the Asia-Pacific region or to other businesses and banks in Europe and the Middle East. They had 26,200 employees in 2008 when they collapsed. Goldman Sachs was founded in 1869 and nearly collapsed in 2008. But they didn't because President George W. Bush authorized the United States Secretary of Treasury to spend up to $700 billion to bail out failing banks in 2008. Goldman Sachs received about $12.9 billion of that alone. Oh, that leads us to another little story about a man named Henry Paulson. Henry was a hard worker who started at Goldman Sachs in 1974. He worked his way up, eventually becoming the CEO of Goldman Sachs in January of 1999. To give you an idea of how much he made as a CEO of Goldman Sachs in 2005, many estimated his benefits package was about $37 million a year. That was his last year with Goldman Sachs. So maybe you're wondering, why are we talking about Henry Paulson if he wasn't at Goldman Sachs when the market collapsed in 2008? Well, he left Goldman Sachs in 2006 because President George W. Bush nominated him to be the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States. To avoid a conflict of interest, he was forced to sell all of his Goldman Sachs stock, for which he earned an estimated $600 million. No, and thanks to a tax provision that President George H.W. Bush passed, Henry Paulson was able to get out of capital gains tax for that sale. So basically, he avoided having to pay about $50 million in taxes. So who was the man who chose to bail out Goldman Sachs to the tune of $12.9 billion while watching their competitor Lehman Brothers go under? Former Goldman Sachs CEO Henry Paulson. The final two companies are Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They were bailed out by the US government and thanks to the unlimited amount of financial assistance we learned about, they're not allowed to collapse. In 2014, it was reported that Fannie Mae 
is operating with losses and about $25.8 billion in revenue per year. Freddie Mac, on the other hand, only has about $14.263 billion in losses per year as of 2014. And as government-backed companies, that means as taxpayers, you and I get to foot the bill of about $40 billion per year that those two organizations are losing. With all of this, it's no wonder people get upset at the super powerful, super rich, and super corrupt nature of those at Wall Street. What's odd though is how many people turn to the government thinking they'll put laws in place to stop this sort of corruption from happening. After all, our elected officials have the people's best interests at heart, right? And yet, how many people in the United States government aren't elected but are appointed officials who simply moved from a big bank or Wall Street firm to be able to help create and enforce laws? People like Henry Paulson. Whose best interest do they have at heart? What do you think about the housing collapse or the corruption that led up to it? Do you think it could happen again? I would love to hear from you. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash based on a true story podcast, on Twitter at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B, or if you want to avoid social media altogether, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B, at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. Thanks again for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.